episode of the Sham Sharma Show. Thank you for watching. I appreciate you. Now, in our first story of the day, the government-appointed interlocutor for Kashmir, Dineshwar Sharma, reached Srinagar yesterday. Now, he's going to spend three days in the valley and two days in Jammu, and he will speak to the governor of the state, N.N. Vohra. He will speak to Mehbooba Mufti and to all related parties as well. Now, Dineshwar Sharma is a 1979 batch Indian Police Services officer from Kerala, Kada, and he also served as the director of the Intelligence Bureau between 2014 and 2016. Now, the central government appointed Dinesh Sharma to be an interlocutor for Jammu Kashmir. He is free to hold talks with any group that he sees fit and he has been encouraged to speak to all parties involved and after his dialogue he is supposed to submit a status report to the center. Now as director of the intelligence bureau he was also working to investigate modules of the Islamic State in states like Kerala, Maharashtra and Karnataka. He in fact wanted to start a policy of counseling and reforming these people in the fledgling Islamic State modules rather than arresting them and prosecuting them directly. Now, Chief Minister of Jammu and Kashmir, Mehbooba Mufti, also welcomed this development from the central government. She said, Welcome the initiative of the union government appointing an interlocutor for leading a sustained dialogue with stakeholders in Jammu and Kashmir. I think this is a very good step for the central government to have taken as well because along with crushing the terrorist problem in Jammu and Kashmir with military means, I think it's also important to have a dialogue or try and have a dialogue with various parties involved in the Kashmir issue. Now, I think along with this, what will also be a very important thing for the government to do is take to take a serious look at Article 370 and 35A of the Constitution. And I'm going to discuss those two articles in a future episode. So please comment below and let me know if you'd want me to cover those two articles in a future video this week, and I'll go ahead and do that as well. This step actually also gives the government a good hand when uh, taking international pressure when it comes to the Jammu and Kashmir situation, because, because they can always say that they also have an interlocutor in the region who is actually talking to all parties involved and trying to find a lasting solution for the Jammu and Kashmir region. Now as this dialogue progresses we're obviously going to be talking about it in a future show as well. Now in another news another assembly election is coming up this time in Himachal Pradesh where the elections will be held on the 9th of November of this year. Now elections in Himachal Pradesh have always had a very interesting pattern as in anti-incumbency has always been a huge issue in this state. In fact for the past five terms the Congress and the BJP have traded governments pretty much every single time. And therefore, as can be ex expected, there's a lot of anti-incumbency against the current Chief Minister Veerbhadra Singh of the Congress as well. On top of the anti-incumbency stuff, the Chief Minister Veerbhadra Singh is also facing corruption issues where he's facing charges for disproportionate assets. And then to add insult to injury, there have also been a sort of rift between the party among the chief minister and some senior leadership. For example, there has been a conflict between uh, Virbhadra Singh and another senior cabinet member, G.S. Bali. And Virbhadra Singh actually also skipped the rally that was organized by G.S. Bali in Kangla district recently as well. And of course, to add to all of this, one good thing that the BJP has also done with the leadership to make their chances better in this election is that they have announced Prem Kumar Dhumal as their chief ministerial candidate. Now again, this is an example of BJP learning from their past mistakes, particularly in Bihar, where they did not announce a clear chief ministerial candidate and they suffered quite heavily for it. So simply looking at trends and how elections in Himachal Pradesh tend to go and how, the, how high the anti-incumbency thing it really is. It does make logical sense to see that BJP will probably end up winning this election, but it'll still be an interesting fight and we'll keep it covered on the show as well. Now, in other news, Kamal Hassan has been in the news recently for making some remarks 
uh, in a magazine in which he publishes articles. So essentially what he said that uh, Hindu terror is a problem in India and that the right wing cannot challenge talk of Hindu terrorists because terror has spread into their camp as well. Now his comments were made in response to a question by Kerala Chief Minister Pinarai Vijayan who asked the superstar about what he described as recent communalization which seeks to destroy the Tamil Dravidian tradition of peaceful coexistence. I have two problems with this paragraph right off the bat. First thing is that it's a little rich of Pinarai Vijayan to talk about communalization and peaceful coexistence, particularly because the CPI and the Communist Party, which he belongs to, has had a long history, not just in India, but overseas across the globe, of not maintaining peaceful coexistence with people. A few great examples are, of course, the political killings that the Communist Party carries out in Kerala, the political killings that the Communist Party carried out in Bengal over the past few decades, political killings in China, the millions and millions of people who died in Russia, and, of course, the numerous political killings in Venezuela, which is a very recent example as well. The second problem I have with this is this whole Dravidian concept of peaceful coexistence. Like, for how did peaceful coexistence became a Dravidian exclusive concept? This has been a Hindu concept for millennia, for thousands of years. It's funny how Vasudeva Kutumbakam became a Dravidian Tamil concept. It's funny how Ekam Sat Vipraha Bahudhavadanti, which means truth is one, the wise call it by many names. How is that a exclusively Tamil uh, Dravidian concept, I have no idea. And of course, who can forget the uh, famous Tamilian Dravidian exclusive concept of Om Sarve Bhavantu Sukhina Sarve Santu Niramayaha Sarve Bhadrani Pashyantu Ma Kaschit Dukh Bhag Bhavet which means may all beings be happy, may all beings be healthy, may all beings experience prosperity and may none in the world suffer. All of this would be very funny if it wasn't patently disingenuous. Now, this whole Hindu terror is this huge problem thing. This is not a new concept. This has been around for quite a while. In fact, back in 2009, there was a report in WikiLeaks where Rahul Gandhi apparently told Timothy Romer, the bigger threat than Islamic terrorism may be the growth of radicalized Hindu groups which create religious tensions and political confrontations with the Muslim community. Now, his finance minister, P.C. Chidambaram, also parroted the same philosophy and also quite recently, an eminent historian, Ramchandra Guha, also said the same thing, that Hindu fundamentalism is actually a much bigger problem than Islamic fundamentalism. So, of course, this is, this is not a new thing. This has been happening happening for quite a while and this has gotten a lot of traction with Indian intelligentsia and with Indian media. So let's look at some facts that regarding this issue. Is Hindu fundamentalism and is Hindu terrorism actually as big of a problem as it's made out to be? Now there's a very good research done by a researcher called Rupa Subramanya who wrote an article in The Open magazine and this article doesn't use any emotional appeals. It doesn't use any sob stories to convince you of the argument. All this argument takes into account are facts. So the research has been done by the data collected by the Global Terrorism Database, which is maintained by the US-based National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Now the Global Terrorism Database also has a very clear definition of terrorism. It says, a terrorist act is defined as the threatened or actual use of illegal force and violence by a non-state actor to attain a political, economic, religious or social goal through fear, coercion, or intimidation. Now to make sure that the data that she gathered was sound, she also cross-referenced her data with the data from the South Asia Terrorism Portal. Now after looking at both of these databases, here are the findings. From a total of 9,069 incidents between 1972 and 2014, Maoist terrorist activities account for 29%, Northeastern terrorist activities account for 25%, 
Jammu and Kashmir activities account for 21%, Sikh 13%, Sri Lankan less than 1%, foreign less than 1%, Muslim 3%, and Hindu 0.6%. And I think it's very safe to assume that a lot of terrorist activities that are happening in Jammu and Kashmir can very safely be, at least partially, linked to religion. Now, according to the research, it shows that Islamic terrorism is five times more likely to occur than Hindu terrorism, even excluding Jammu and Kashmir. And of course, the biggest perpetrators of terrorism in India in the past decade has been being the Maoists. Now, this is not to say that there is not a level of extremism present in Hindu society today. Yes, there is. And it's actually pretty clear to see in regards to what Kamal Hassan said as well. In fact, a member of the Akhil Bharatiya Hindu Mahasabha, Ashok Sharma, he said, Kamal Hassan and the likes of him should either be shot dead or hanged so that they learn a lesson. Any person who uses abusive language for people belonging to the Hindu faith does not have the right to live on this holy land and they should get death in return for their remarks. Yeah, that's a stupid remark. Completely, completely stupid, idiotic remarks like these just add more fuel to the fire when people say that, oh, Hindu terrorism is this huge problem. Statistics do not support that claim. Yes, I do agree that there is a certain amount of extremism that has seeped into Hindu society, undoubtedly. But I think it's extremely disingenuous how much weight the media and the intelligentsia attribute to this problem. Look, what I'm trying to say is, is that if you look at the UPA2 tenure from 2009 to 2013, crimes against Dalits actually increased by almost 20%. But no one went out and made the argument that the Congress party is actually the Dalit extermination party or they're trying to exterminate Dalits from India. I'm just saying that there has to be a bit more nuance to this conversation. And Kamal Hassan knows exactly what he's doing. He's, he's trying to play that game. And in India these days, unfortunately, the best way to gain instant credit and the best way to become a darling of the intelligentsia and a darling of the media is to point out that how big of a problem Hindu terror actually is and how it is actually a threat to the idea of India and so on and so forth. Essentially what I'm saying is this is a much more nuanced conversation and it's actually very disingenuous of the media and of a lot of people to suggest that Hindu fundamentalism is actually the biggest problem facing India right now. In fact, left-wing terrorism and Maoist terrorism, simply statistically speaking, is the largest threat to India right now. And yes, I'm happy to have that conversation about how there's a nuance to terrorism, how you know some terrorists or some terrorist activities can have genuine grievances behind them. I understand that and I'm willing to have that conversation and I'm willing to have that understanding. But for some reason, when it comes to Hindu communities, there doesn't seem to be that much understanding. Anyway, again, that's my opinion of the issue. Please let me know what you think of these remarks. And what do you think of this whole theory? Do you think that Hindu terrorism, terrorism is actually this huge, monstrous problem in India? Or do you think that there is a slant that the media tends to put on this issue particularly? Let me know in the comments below. Let's try and talk it out. Now, our next bit of news takes us to Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia actually had quite a bit of upheaval recently where the newly formed anti-corruption committee of the kingdom arrested at least 17 princes and top officials. Now, this list in includes a Saudi billionaire called Al-Walid bin Talal. Now, Al-Walid bin Talal has stakes in companies like Apple, Citigroup, Twitter. Now, as part of this crackdown on corruption, the head of the National Guard, Prince Miteb bin Abdullah, was also detained and removed from his post. Now, the anti-corruption committee was formed by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Now, this is seen by many people as Mohammed bin Salman actually trying to consolidate power within himself. And by the way that the arrests have been conducted, it seems that he has full support from his father, the king as well. Now, certain commentators are also seeing this move very similar to moves conducted by certain authoritarian figures, particularly Xi Jinping in China, who has used the corruption charges 
argument to consolidate his own power and his own authority as well. Now Prince Mohammed bin Salman is actually a pretty interesting character because he's actually seen as the moderate face of Islam in Saudi Arabia. He's been seen as instrumental in the decision of Saudi Arabia to allow women to start driving. He also has been instrumental in creating a plan for Saudi Arabia called Vision 2030. Now as part of this Vision 2030, he also wants Saudi Arabia to move away from its dependence on oil and to diversify its industry into different things so they create a more sustainable future for the Saudi Arabian economy. He also suggested that his father's generation had steered the country down a problematic path and that it was time to get rid of it. He wants to create a Saudi Arabia which is a tolerant country with Islam as its constitution and moderation as its method. So Saudi Arabia practices a pretty conservative brand of Islam called Wahhabism. Under this Wahhabist ideology, women are of course not allowed to leave the house without a male guardian or supervisor. The government does not grant licenses to non-Muslim places of worship. And Saudi Arabia also has this outfit called the Mutaween or the uh, religious police. Now the Mutaween in Saudi Arabia are tasked with enforcing Sharia as defined by the government, specifically by the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. Now the Mutaween have the power to arrest unrelated males and females caught socializing, anyone engaged in homosexual behavior or prostitution, to enforce Islamic dress codes and store closures during prayer time. So it's of course a very, very conservative country and it's very interesting to see the crown prince of the country who is going to be the future king of course espouse such secular values and to say that the country needs to move away from conservatism to a more liberal brand of Islam. It'll be very interesting to see how his rule develops once he actually becomes king how much of this is just talk and how much of this he's actually going to go ahead and implement. And the recent corruption crackdown that he has also undertaken might just be a way to consolidate power for him so that he has very few opponents when it comes to challenging the modernization drives that he wants to undertake in Saudi Arabia as well. So this is definitely something that we should keep an eye on and this is definitely something that we're going to cover in a future show as well. And that's the show. Thank you very much for watching. Again, I appreciate you. Again, if you're enjoying the show, please like the show. Please share the show, please subscribe to the show's channel, and please comment and let me know your thoughts and what do you think about the topics that I've been talking about. The show is going to be back again on Wednesday to give you the top news stories of the day. So make sure you subscribe to the channel and your notifications are on. Until then, stay healthy, stay happy, and I'll see you soon.